Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. I'm so excited to share today's story with you. Today we have a beautiful, inspiring story of perseverance. A story of an amazing man and his brilliant, powerful mother fighting against the odds to make it. And they did make it in more ways than one. My guest today is Desmond Blair, and Desmond was born without hands. He was also born to a single mother in the projects of East Dallas, yet he's gone on to become a wildly talented artist and a mentor to others that are taking on challenges similar to the ones he faced. Desmond is a powerfully positive force. I think you will all fall in love with his spirit. I think you'll fall in love with his story. But I really think Desmond's mother may be the star of this episode. Desmond, if you're listening, I'm sorry to tell you, but I just fell in love with Desmond's mother. I'm a mama's boy myself, and I was so touched by the way he described their relationship. I was so touched by who she was to him and what she did for him and what she sacrificed for him and the standards she held him to. And as Desmond says it better than I could, he knows that God gave him the mother for the situation he was born into. Desmond shares about the challenges he faced growing up without hands. He shares some amazing stories and anecdotes about what he went through. He shares how he found art and how he excelled. He shares why he doesn't consider himself disabled and why he prefers the use of the word different and why he thinks it's important for you to embrace your differences. We talked quite a bit about that powerful figure that was his mother and why she was so influential. He shares about losing his mother prematurely and how difficult this was and what he learned from it. He offers an amazing explanation of what perseverance is to him, which he is obviously someone that knows a lot about that term. And he ends with what it means when he tells you to become a master of your soul. I want you all to go check out Desmond's work on Instagram. You can find him at D underscore Blair. And if you're interested in purchasing a painting from Desmond, you can go to PencilOnPaperGallery.com. That's PencilOnPaperGallery.com. Desmond is a wild talent, that's for sure, but of far greater importance, he is a beautiful human being. Desmond, I want to thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your spirit with me. Ladies and gentlemen, Desmond Blair. Desmond, thank you for joining me. I've admired you from afar for a little while now, so I'm excited to get this story behind the the smile and the spirit and hopefully have some of that smile and spirit rub off on me. Well, let's start from the very beginning. Why don't you start by describing for listeners the limb difference you were born with? So I was born with what my doctor described as bilateral hand absence, which means I didn't develop my fingers. You know, after I was born, I think I was a month old, I became a patient at Scottish Rite. And then the doctors there working with us, it was just, you know, it was a mutation in one of those things that happened. Don't really understand why there was nothing wrong with my mom or going on with her at the time. It just was one of those things that happened after I was born. I'm fortunate because 
her mindset was from the jump, you're going to get an education and we're going to figure this out. Yeah, we're going to get into your mom because I'm also a mama's boy. So I think we're going to bond there a little bit. But before we do that, so you were ostensibly born without hands or at least without fingers. What were some of the biggest challenges for someone born without hands? And if you could share some of the physical challenges, but I'd love to hear some of the mental and social challenges that stick out from growing up. So when I was a kid, like earlier on, I mean, you don't think about it until you start going to school, like some of the more mental challenges and stuff. But just earlier on, I remember when I was little, just doing day to day stuff, learning how to eat. I actually have a prosthetic here with me. I can send you a picture of it, but yeah, send us a picture and we'll post it. This was one of my first prosthetics. So before I learned how to hold a fork and spoon with my hands, I used to use these things and they were like bracelets and I'd slip them on and the curve in the spoon was how I would eat my food. So I think earlier on, like when I was younger, I can remember getting frustrated about a lot of things. My mom and my grandma, they were both really instrumental in helping me to deal with that because my mom didn't sugarcoat the fact that you're different. This world is designed for people with fingers. You don't have those. So what we have to do is everything or just being able to do things like take care of yourself, get dressed, eat a meal. We're going to have to find your way to do those things. I can remember I had already started school, but I was about five or six. I hated dress shirts, but we go to church every Sunday. And there was just this one Sunday. My mom was like, nope, I'm not helping you this morning. You got to figure out how to do this on your own. Of course, I got mad and I got frustrated. You know, if you want to try this for fun, just ball your fists up and try buttoning, unbuttoning your shirt top to bottom. But I had a lot of those, I think, little moments earlier on where it was just learning how to adapt to be able to function. And my mom was very adamant about that because her concern was, I may not always be there or you may be with family or something like that. And they don't know how to help you or they won't be able to help you or, you know, eventually you're going to be an adult one day and you got to learn how to do these things. So earlier on, it was just really like learning how to work through the frustration with adapting to things in a world that wasn't always designed for you. Well, you mentioned frustration a couple of times. Would you have described yourself as this joyful, optimistic personality that we see today? It sort of radiates off you today. Were you that way as a kid or did the frustration get to you somewhat? I was always pretty happy. It's just when I, there would be like certain things when I was a kid that would like drive me nuts. So like dress shirts or tying shoes, I learned how to tie them with my mouth. And so when I would get my shoes, I eventually like I learned how to tie them with my teeth. But then it's like when you're wearing them and you've been outside and they come untied, it's like I'm not doing that. I want to ask you something. Then this sounds like it started from a young age and maybe through your mother. You say you're not disabled, you're different. I want you to explain the difference between the two. What's the reason for the distinction between disabled and different? What does that mean to you? The difference between being disabled and being different to me 
it's more so an internal thing. And I, I really do. I think I get that from my mom, both my mom and my grandma, because just being at home, disability wasn't a term that they used to describe me. You're just different and we have to figure out how you're going to navigate things. That was always echoed to me. And then when I would tell my grandmother that I couldn't do something, she would recite Invictus to me and then eventually make me recite Invictus. I, I kind of learned that if I start to complain about it or get down about something, then it's like, I'm like, grandma's just going to make me recite Invictus. <laughs> you're not solving anything. Yeah. But I appreciate it now that I'm older because I see what she was doing. So instead of wallowing in those moments where I may have felt discouraged, she was teaching me how to work through that and then start trying to solve a problem, figure out whatever it is I was trying to do at the time. But I guess that mindset is just different and not disabled. It was echoed at home me like over and over again because the moment I would say I can't do something my mom she would follow up with a question if I told her I couldn't do something she would ask me if I tried and if I said no she was like okay well then it's not that you can't do it you just don't want to do it so say that if I told her what it was that I didn't want to do a lot of times it was me trying to get out of doing chores she was like, okay, yeah, no, you can do that. It's probably going to take you longer, but eventually the more you do it, the better you'll get at it, the easier it'll get. The word can't was, I don't want to say it wasn't allowed, but it was just one of those things where it's like, well, let's think about this. If you haven't tried it, don't say you can't do it. Something that comes up a lot on this platform is the importance or the power of words. And it sounds like your family understood that from an early age, that how you frame a situation mentally oftentimes affects your actions. But I will say this, Desmond, when I read that, I thought different was an interesting word choice because most kids don't want to be different. They want to fit in. So what would you tell young people or people in general about the power of being different or the power of embracing your difference? I think embracing your difference allows you to really accept yourself for who you are. And I struggled with that when I was younger. So up until I was about six, I would hide my hands. If we went anywhere in public, I would put them in my pockets because it wasn't just kids that would stare at me and my mom. It would be adults. And that was really awkward when as a kid, you hear these adults whispering and stuff around you when you're just at Brahms trying to get ice cream or something, right? I would hide my hands a lot. This is funny because I was trying out for my first soccer team and I was at tryouts. But at the whole tryout, I was like trying to run and chase people down with my hands in my pockets. Because I didn't want the other kids, you know, asking me questions or pointing at me or, you know, laughing and stuff like that. And my mom called me over to the side, you know, sideline. And she was like, take your hands out of your pockets. What are you doing? And I'm like, well, I don't I don't want anybody to like point or like laugh or anything like that. And she's like, who cares about that? She's like, you're drawing more attention to the fact that you don't have hands with them in your pockets than you would if you just went out there and played. Because if you go out there and play and you dust everybody, they're not going to care about the fact that you don't have hands. 
they're going <laughs> to want you on their team. Sure enough, that's just what happened. I, I like it was that moment for me where I realized and then even in other social settings, I would hear her saying that or go back to that moment and just realize that it's OK to be different. And when people stare, I'd encourage them to ask questions or like if they were far away and they pointed, I'd like smile and wave at them. What I'm hearing is if you don't embrace your difference, how is anybody else going to embrace it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it it was more so that mindset that was just kind of put into me at at a younger age. So the reason that's important, because I'm talking about physical difference, but I noticed as I got older, some of the identity things that like teenagers go through, where they're worried about what people are going to say or think. When my friends would talk about some of that stuff, even when I got to college, I'm like, why do you care about that if you're being who you are and you're being yourself? That shouldn't matter. What you like, what you don't like, who you are as a person, you have to be yourself. And I think my limb difference kind of helped me come to some of those realizations earlier on, because even with making friends, I learned very quickly, like, there will be people that are really legitimately your friends and there are people who will be friends with you, you know, when it's just you and them. And then when you get around other people and they see you don't have hands, it'll like, you know, you know, they'll freak out. But I think my limb difference helped me in those other areas because I just realized this is a thing that's not going to change. So if it's not going to change, then I have to start to understand myself and be comfortable being who I am. And the people that will love you are going to love you. And the people that won't, well, you just got to smile at them and let them live their life. Desmond, I love that you came to see it as an advantage because I agree with you. I think that's something that I would say I came to late in life. But you had that adversity early on that made you realize that caring about what other people think to some extent is not a good place to be in. And I think it's interesting that you framed it as I had an advantage. I learned that earlier than you did. And now I'm in a better mental place. That's a wonderful way to frame that. We'll get into your relationship with art. So you're an amazing artist. How does a child with no hands come to believe he can be a great artist? When you tell people, like even now, if they haven't seen my work, a lot of times they're like, was well, it like abstract or do you like splatter paint or something like that to me it's kind of crazy because hearing it come from other people like you're an artist but you don't have hands if I wasn't me like it wouldn't make sense just thinking back to where I got started it was really again my mom was she was very big on education like she wanted me to have as I guess quote unquote normal a childhood as any other kid Same thing with being an adult. The stigma of disability, she just didn't want that placed on me. We had to figure out how I was going to be able to start classes with other kids. I learned things by watching, but then, you know, to start school, the teachers, they were like, he has to be able to write. He has to be able to use scissors. He has to be able to, you know, just basic things, I guess, kindergartners do, right? Somehow or another, my mom found, she actually found this program And I was able to start school when I was three years old. Before doing that, the summer before doing that, we were trying to figure out the whole writing thing. And so my grandma came up with, 
the idea to use coloring books. She would go buy like a stack of coloring books and crayons. And that whole summer, I would like sit in her room and color. And every time I'd make a mistake or scribble outside the lines, she'd have me do it over. Now, there was a process to me learning how to use both of my hands. Because when she got the coloring books, we were just trying to figure out how to use the crayons, period. So I tried using my feet. I couldn't quite get it down. I tried using my teeth and my mouth. But the thought of me going to school and being in a room full of other kids, I was like, I'm not doing that. Plus, the crayons tasted gross. And then we tried some other things, too, but ultimately figured out how to use both of my hands to be able to write scribble like on the pages. And then I would sit in my grandma's room next to her bed for like three or four hours before I could go outside or go watch TV and stuff. She would make me do this like every morning in the summer. I'd sit in there while she was watching the news and I'd color. And when I'd scribble outside the line, she'd turn the page and was like, okay, we're going to try this again. So stay inside the lines. We did that for probably about a month and a half or so. And I got to the point to where I could color the pages in the coloring book, I guess, front to back, no mistakes. From there, it went to writing, like, you know, those early, like those writing books and stuff where you trace the letters. So we went to that. And then by the time I was, I started school, I was able to write, but my grandma kept buying the coloring books. And so I'm like, at this point, I don't know why she's still buying these because we solved the problem. But she started letting me pick out the ones she would buy. Like any kid, I watched Saturday morning cartoons and I'd pick out the coloring books, you know, kind of based on the cartoons and stuff. I would trace the pictures in the coloring books because I didn't need the color anymore because I figured that part out. But I always wanted to learn how to draw. So I would trace the characters and stuff like that. And then one day, I think it was in the first grade, I drew um, Buster Bunny from Tiny Toon Adventures. I was just sitting at our living room table watching TV, and I just drew what I saw. And I took it to my grandma, and she was like, no, like you traced that. And I'm like, no, I drew it. And so she's like, okay, we'll do it again. After she saw me do it, it just kind of turned into, at first it turned into our thing. Like She would give me stuff around the house to draw. Would you describe it as a gift, Desmond, that you had some sort of innate talent? Or do you think it was just you constantly working at it and working at it? I think maybe a little bit of both because you have to understand spatial relations and proportions to be able to sit down and draw something like that you're looking at and have it make sense. But it was definitely the repetition of coloring and tracing I think that probably also helped with that. So I feel like it was a combination of things that just kind of melded together. And then my mom figured out that I was like really into it. When she realized like, okay, well, this is what he likes to do. She would buy me like sketch pads from Walmart. I found Bob Ross. And so it it just kind of like, it just kind of went from there. Well, before we get into all that, Desmond, Let's pause and talk about your mother for a bit. Like I mentioned early on, I'm a mama's boy. You're mentioning your mom and your grandmother over and over again. My mother's a prevailing force in my life also. She's my comforter. She's my mentor. She's my friend. She's my critic when I need to hear a hard truth. And I know how powerful your mother is in your life. So I want to hear more about her. Why is she so important to you? 
I don't know how to explain it. God gave me the mom that I needed for the situation that I was born into. And I can't put it any other way because from the very get go, she didn't see my limb difference as something that would make me less than something that would hinder me. It was just like she knew, okay, this is the reality of the situation that we're in. And she's very big on education. She was more concerned about that. I'm going to do everything I can do to make sure he gets the best education that he can get. From a very young age, there weren't excuses or my my me not having hands wasn't an excuse for me not doing something. She would even tell my teachers <laughs> once I started grade school. So it was funny because like every year she would take me up there, meet with my teachers, meet with the principal. And she would tell him he can write. He can do all of these things. If he tells you he can't do something, call me and I'll get it like sorted out. Because <laughs> she wasn't going to let me like, I guess, take advantage of, of the fact that like sometimes people underestimate you, I guess. Right. Yeah. I want to linger there for a minute on the idea of high standards because your mother demanded excellence from you. I think that's the word you use on your website. And I love this. I can picture a mother demanding excellence. My mother demanded that excellence. What do you think an expectation of excellence did for you growing up? Again, going back to the whole being disabled thing, it allowed me to overcome that. Just because we would figure out how to solve a problem at home, that doesn't mean it was done. It's like that was the first step, like learning how to use a fork and spoon without my prosthetics. The prosthetic was the first step because I could eat my food. Now what happens if we go to a restaurant or what happens if we go out of town and you forget to pack it? You're not going to not eat. So we have to figure out how to refine those skills. This is why she would talk to my teachers, because I spent so much time doing that. It's funny because my mom, she never we would have conversations even when I was little because she didn't do the baby talk thing with me. She talked to me like a person. And so I was pretty advanced. She read to me a lot, too. So by the age of three or four, I was already reading children's books and stuff like that. So she knew I was like smart. I think that also was another reason that she expected that excellence because she could show me how to do something one or two times. And it's like I pick it up. And so she would tell my teachers that I know what he can do. Don't let him fool you. <laughs> Call me if you have any questions. And she she was always there first day of school. So my fourth grade teacher, first day of class, even after having this conversation, he was still kind of like, well, I got this kid in my class and he doesn't have hands. I don't know what to do. So he starts teaching math. He gives everybody else like they pull out their books and they start, they, you know, they turn a worksheet. And so he starts writing problems out, multiplication problems out on the chalkboard. Well, me, he put me in the corner at this desk and gave me some multiplication cards. I was young, you know, I'm like in the fourth grade. So I'm like, uh, I don't know if I should say something to him because I don't want him to call my mom because I'm not trying to get in trouble. Or I don't know if I get in trouble for saying anything to him. So I just kind of did it. But what he didn't understand is the multiplication cards he had given me. I had those same cards at home and I've been using them since I was like in the second grade. 
my mom's oldest brother, he lived in California at the time. He made a deal with me. I'm going to date myself with this. But I was in like the second grade and he told me one summer if I figured out how to multiply and divide, then he would buy me a Sega Genesis. So I had learned how to multiply in like second grade. And like we were doing this in class. So I'm sitting there like, uh, I don't know if I should say something. So I told my mom what happened. I don't know what she said to the guy. <laughs> I still don't know to this day, but I think she put the fear of God in him because the next day I was back with the rest of the class. And I bet your mom said my son doesn't need your pity or something like that. I, I don't know if she would have articulated it this way, but she clearly understood that human beings need to be challenged to grow. And if you strip that challenge away from a human being, if you strip that expectation of excellence away from a human being, you're doing them an enormous disservice. And I think that's so impressive that she understood that. You can elaborate or not elaborate here at all, but I know you you lost your mother recently. That's something that's hard for me to imagine, though I certainly will have to someday. Can you articulate anything you learned from that experience? Whether you learned it about yourself, you learned it about the world, what did you learn from losing someone so important to you? Yesterday was actually the two-year anniversary. And I think afterwards, right after it happened, I just really didn't know how to take it at first. But I was, I guess if you could say, wise enough to understand that I was in a vulnerable place. So I kind of backed off a little bit. My friends would check on me and stuff like that. But I gave myself time to really digest or think about what had happened. And and not even really think about losing her per se, but just reflect on all the experiences that we had had together. Because I tell people this all the time. She was my mother, but she was also like my Bill Belichick. She's the Bill Belichick to me being Tom Brady. She would sanity check me on things. She, you know, it's like conversation starts. How are you doing? What's going on? I could tell her whatever I was thinking about. Then it was like, okay, if you're struggling with this, now we need to talk about what you're going to do, what you're going to do about it. Let's think our way through that. So I think it was like a twofold kind of hit because it's like, wow, even before I would make large financial decisions, I would call her to, she was really good about it, poking holes in my logic. She has advantage. She's my mom. So she knows your strengths and she know she knew my weaknesses. And so it kind of hit me like twofold. But I, I gave myself, I think, the time alone to really digest how I was feeling. I was still working and stuff. But outside of that, I made space to actually work through those emotions. But then the next thing is figuring out how to get back up from losing somebody like that, because overall, it didn't matter what challenge I faced or what I was going through or who told me I couldn't do something, whether a door was closed in my face, whether I, you know, I felt like the world was coming down on me. Her voice was always loud enough to drown out all of that noise. It had been that way since I was a kid, even when I would go places and I would hear people tell her, no, we can't take him because he doesn't have hands and we don't know what to do about that. We get in the car, have a conversation about it. She finds something else, <laughs> you know, 
And I'm speaking of her finding programs and extracurricular things to like keep me involved in and keep me active. If one person would say no, okay, well, we just got to go to the next person, the next person. In the meantime, in a whole time in the background, whatever it was I wanted to do, she taught me enough. Like, if you want to do something, take it serious. I'd be training or practicing or doing all this stuff without people knowing because she's like, when we get the yes, you got to be able to go in there and like set the ground on fire. Because people are going to underestimate you off top because of how you look. Just having her be there to be that voice that cuts through that noise and figuring out how I find that voice or amplify it on my own, that was probably and still probably is like, it's gotten better. The ATF program, I think, helped a lot with that. But finding that voice on my own, that was the biggest challenge. And then just, you know, it's my mom. Like, so being able to pick her up and go to brunch and versus you think about the times when you were a kid and like, she would take you to McDonald's and stuff. And now you're able to just take her out for lunch and stuff like that. I do miss those things and just getting her thoughts and stuff. Yeah. I mean, you're speaking my language that she's the first person you call. If things are going well, if things are going bad, if you're confused, you mentioned a financial decision. I mean, that's the same for me. And to lose that is challenging in itself. But what I loved about listening to you, Desmond, was you kept talking not necessarily about what she was saying to you, but about her actions. And she was teaching you through actions. And I think that's how kids learn. I've read a book on parenting because I'm a parent of two girls. It hit home with me that your kids are going to remember what you do more than what you say. And you kept pointing out these things that she was doing. She was doing. And now we're going to get to this later, but you've become that role for kids in your life through your work. And I think that's a direct relation to who your mother was and the impact she had on you. Well, you mentioned ATF. Let's get into ATF a bit, which is the Adaptive Training Foundation. This is where I first became aware of you. I didn't know coming in that I was going to get such access to what you guys were doing, but I got I was overjoyed. I got to sit in on your morning meditation. And this is all from memory. So correct me if any of this is wrong, but I remember... The end of that morning meditation on your very last day, the day of your graduation, you all shared something that you understood you now deserve, that you didn't understand that you deserved when you started. And I think, I think you said something of the fact that you know you deserve to walk into a room and be the baddest guy in the room or something of that like. I, I can't remember exactly. It was something surrounding confidence. You had, you deserved confidence to understand who you were and believe who you were. Walk me through what you were speaking to in that moment. What I was speaking to in that moment is just it's something that I think that's personal to me because I, I work I work as a uh, project manager for Scottish Rite Hospital and going to work every day. Like it takes me back to being a patient. I always wondered if there were adults like me. I met other patients, but it's like I always wondered if there were other adults out there like me. And I think being an adult with the limb difference, a lot of times you are the only person in a room or in a situation with that limb difference. And in that moment, my statement was geared towards from here on out with my limb difference or whatever, you know, not even thinking about that. I just want to exude that energy when I walk in a room that 
okay, this guy, he's missing his hands, but there's something like different about him. That statement, I think, was more of an affirmation or a commitment to being able to do that. And I had to get back to that point after losing my mom because she was the one that, you know, I called and it's like you get the locker room to like the the pregame warm up speech, you know, before you go out and do something big, just being able to learn how to do that myself. So when I go into those situations or when I go places that I haven't been or I'm around people I haven't been, they see that I'm different more so than they see a disability. Well, what I'm hearing is no matter what room you walk into, not only do you know you belong, but you know that you deserve to command that room. You deserve to have the confidence to make an impact on everyone in that room. I think that's a powerful statement, but... Let's talk about coming into ATF. This is, again, from memory, but they showed your self-portrait on your first day of class in the video, and they showed your self-portrait on the last day of class. And I still remember it. The first one you drew was of a man with his shoulders down, slouched, his head down. He looked meek. And then the last one you drew was of a man who looked like a superhero. Talk to me about that transition. Where did you come in mentally? Why did the self-portrait on day one look the way it did? And then how did it transform into this superhero self-portrait on day, whatever the last day was? When I came into ATF, I had lost my mom. One of the things I had started doing to kind of cope with it was running. So I started running about three miles a day. But I was trying to just figure out, it's like, okay. What do I do next? Because a couple of months before she passed away, she helped me just with a very large career decision. After she passed, it kind of hit me like all of this work from when I was a kid to now. It's like it's finally starting, starting to happen. Right. And the person you want to share it with the most is no longer here. It was hard for me because. When I was little, we lived in the projects in East Dallas, Southeast Dallas. I remember us like, it's like we were catching the bus back and forth to work. And if we missed the bus, like we were stuck. I remember times when it's like we were walking home and it just started pouring down rain. And my mom, it's funny because like she didn't really, you would expect her to freak out about us being wet, but she would just kind of make fun and we like laugh about it and stuff. But going from that to then we went from the projects to an apartment. And then when I was starting the first grade, her and my grandma got got our house in Pleasant Grove. Just thinking about all those experiences to where I am now. And she was getting me ready to purchase my first home. We got here, but now the person I should I want to celebrate with the most is not here anymore felt kind of hollow and just, I guess, a little confused in starting ATF because it's like, okay, well, which way do I go now? Like, you know, you did all this work to get to this point. Well, what do you do next? Through the program and meeting my classmates, because learning about them, their stories, I think it came at the time when I needed it myself. All of us had in common or had some sort of difference in common. 
but our perspectives and our life experiences were very broad. But we were able to unify in that space and understand and relate to one another because of those experiences, right? And I needed that at that time. And through my training, watching them train, watching each other, I think, battle through those hard days, it reinvigorated me in a way that I'm like, okay, I was able to find my voice and where I need to go or where I want to go next. And ultimately, I want to live my life in such a way that when I'm done, no kid born with a limb difference or any other disability for that matter will be ashamed of that when they walk into a room or enter a space that they're unfamiliar with or there are people there that don't know them. Well, man, it sounds like you not only had people you could relate to and an experience to share, you could take the focus off yourself and focus it on bettering someone else, which is what your mother taught you, which is what you focus on in your work. And maybe you lost your way or your spirit a bit, but it refocused you that, hey, my focus shouldn't be here on me. It should be on others. I think that's a beautiful thing, man. You just shared something I didn't know about your upbringing. It sounds like your limb difference was one of a number of hurdles and obstacles you had in front of you. It sounds to me like you know a thing or two about perseverance, about moving forward in the face of adversity. What is perseverance to you and what is your strategy to consistently find perseverance when you constantly are running into obstacles or when you need it the most? It's interesting because I like you figure out one way, I think, to talk to yourself internally to get through tough times. Uh, but again, going back to my experience at ATF, the coaching we got from Mo, it helped us or helped me, I think, think of things in a different way. So there was one week where we talked about plateauing, right? So you've been in the program, you're starting to see changes, you're getting stronger, you're noticing like differences, but then there's a point where you just feel like, stuck like is this still working am i still making progress we had to do this ice bath thing right and that was i i really feel like a transformative moment for me because the ice bath wasn't going anywhere you were gonna like sit in that ice bath and then with everybody in your class they're doing it, it's like okay it's not going anywhere but when you deal with those things that aren't going anywhere, and it's crazy because you think I would know this being born without hands, that wasn't going to change. But this reminded me, you have to dig into those moments. It's not necessarily about, I got to push through, I got to push through. Sometimes it's just about being able to endure those tough spots. So like sitting in that ice bath for like a minute and like you feel like, pins and needles are like prickling you. I'm going back to, I guess, the ALS challenge, which I we didn't know my mom was going to develop ALS. But I'm like, if that's how she felt every day and still managed to keep a smile on her face, still found the energy to call everybody she called, keep us in good spirits. And even the last few moments I spent with her, she smiled at me and gave me a thumbs up. Like, that's the way I remember it. It changed my mindset about perseverance and how to handle situations that are difficult because it may not move out of the way. It may not end. You may have to deal with it 
for a prolonged period. But perseverance isn't about like always fighting your way through. Sometimes it's about finding that calm in the middle of it and learning how to endure until the end. You know, I still have a little bit of that that fight in me, but then I've also too learned there are different ways and different times to use it. Sometimes you have to learn how to endure and then you endure to a point to where you, it's like, okay, now I let the fight go. I let it out of me. And then this is where we use our strength. But it's a combination of fight and endurance. And I think that's the way I view perseverance now. I think that's absolutely beautiful, Desmond. I mean, I think it's beautiful. I had I heard a, a psychologist say one time that it's not always helpful to always have to have a solution or to always have to overcome. Sometimes it's enough just to endure. Sometimes it's enough just to sit still and find that calmness, which you hit on that. I think that's such a beautiful thing because I think for me, every situation has to end in a solution. What was our solution here? And to point out that sometimes that's not the answer. Sometimes it's just to empathize and to be compassionate and to endure. I think that's a beautiful message, bud. I I love the way you articulated that. Well, let's wrap up with one last question. You've dedicated your life now at Scottish Rite, and I know even your personal life, to giving back, focusing on others, impacting others. And you describe the message that you tried to convey as how to be a master of the soul. So why don't you end by telling us all what it means to be a master of the soul? That comes from the <laughs> the last line in Invictus. And again, it's funny because when I joined my fraternity, that was one of the first poems we learned. And they were like, well, how do you know this thing word for word? I was like, my grandma's been speaking this to me since I was like a kid. But I guess being a master of your soul to me means really understanding who you are. And that changes throughout life. So like, don't think of it as static, but always taking the time to really understand who you are, where you are, what your strengths are. And what your weaknesses are and what weaknesses you can work on and what weaknesses you need to ask help for. But to me, that that level of mastery is how you achieve anything, because it gives you the patience, the calmness, the resolve to stay focused on your goals, but also to be able to see clearly when you need to go full throttle at something in the right time to do it. And again, I think it's something that evolves and it changes throughout life because we face different challenges in different stages of life. If you can conquer the internal and get that voice sorted out to where it like screams at you in a way that keeps a fire lit inside of you, that's the way I want to do life. And even on the days where it's like, I feel like I'm dragging. There's still that voice inside of me. It's like, get up, move. And being able to do that and then just keep that fire, I think, going internally, uh, whatever you're passionate about. For me, if it's art, if it's helping people, technology, training, being able to find that voice and keep that fire going. I think that's how you master yourself. Beautiful, bud. Absolutely beautiful. I I thank you so much for your message, for your story, for your spirit. 
This has just been wonderful, man. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you.